I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and very little security. I rely entirely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where patrons get early access to episodes, exclusive access to select content, and private live streams. You can also subscribe to The Same Drugs on Substack. That's meganmurphy.substack.com. Or you can support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on The Same Drugs podcast page. You can also learn more about my work and donate to support it at meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Matt Thornton, author of a new book out April 11th called The Gift of Violence, Practical Knowledge for Surviving and Thriving in a Dangerous World. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I do, I really love this book, like more than I, I thought I would. I didn't, I don't know if I knew quite what to expect, but I, I, I think it's great. And I'm, I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to talk with you about it. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, can I ask you, uh, I mean, how, when did you start working on this book? First of all, 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Okay. Sure. maybe maybe even sooner than that i had it i had in my mind um what i wanted to write about what i wanted to write about was the my experiences teaching martial arts the last 30 years how that relates to violence keeping people safe self-defense training methods pretty much the whole package um and i was always struggling to organize the material because I find organization of nonfiction books could be really difficult because there's no plot. And <laughs> where's it going to go? Because I wasn't writing a, like a martial arts picture book that would go in the jujitsu section next to some of my peers. And I just happened to have lunch one day with Sam Harris. I think it was 2014 or 2015. So it was a long time ago. Um, or I'm sorry, 24, or 25. And he said to me, I think you're writing about violence. No, it was 2014 and 2015. But anyway, we talked about the book and he said, which I described to him what I was doing. And he said, you're writing about violence, just a general book on violence. And then when he said that, I realized, yeah, that's, that is actually what I'm doing. And then that made it even a longer process because I wanted to make sure I, I had a couple of things I wanted to do. I wanted to dive into all the data and get a look at all the data, especially here in the United States, kind of uh, free of any interpretations. And then after I looked at the raw data, I went back and read a tremendous amount of what was on the market just to make sure I wasn't going to be somebody else hadn't written the book I want to write. And um, then I started writing. So it's I definitely, for me, a slow process. So 
that's 2.15, and, uh, um, yeah, it's been a while. Okay, well, that makes me feel better because <laughs> I'm still plugging away at, at the manuscript I've been working on for far too long now, too. Um, I, I mean, I guess I, I want to show everyone the book first. It's called The Gift of Violence. Um, and I think, so The Gift of Violence, Practical Knowledge for Surviving and Thriving in a Dangerous World. I mean, I think that, I mean, what it what the book turned out to be and what you've written about and, and what I've learned was not what I expected to, which I think is a good thing. Um, because, I mean, first of all, you write a lot, of course, about mixed martial arts and jujitsu. Um, and you also write a lot about, you know, the realities of violence. And as somebody, I, I came out of feminism and out of the left. Um, I don't really identify with either of those categories or ideologies anymore. Um, but, you know, I remember when I used to try to describe feminism to people, you know, it's always popular to, to try to argue about definitions of various ideologies and political factions amongst your mini factions. I would say, you know, something like, I don't know, eradicating the patriarchy and ending violence against women. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, I mean, it sort of sounds cynical to say, but I think that's a naive goal for a number of reasons. One of which being that, like, the reality is that we can't eradicate violence, which is something that you talk about in your book. The idea that we can live in some kind of nonviolent world is just, never going to happen. No. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I was raised, I talk a little bit of, a bit about it in the beginning of my book, but I was raised, my mother was a pacifist, so she was Jehovah's Witness. And they have, a, you know, they won't be, they don't join the military, they won't be police officers, they don't, they won't do anything that involves carrying a gun. They definitely wouldn't do martial arts, so they have a very strict interpretation of Jesus's version of turning the other cheek. And on the other hand, I had my dad, who was a police officer, who was not a Jehovah's Witness, which is probably what saved me in the long run, having both points of view open to me. But I began to see the contradictions really early on. And when I would confront my dad about it, and I would say, you know, try and make sense of it, he, his answer was always the same. He's like, well, if everybody believed like your mom did, you know, we wouldn't need to have police officers. We wouldn't have those kind of problems. And that's true, but it's also irrelevant because it's like saying, you know, if there was no disease, we wouldn't need doctors. That's 100% true. If there was no disease, we wouldn't be, we need doctors. But there always will be, and there always has been, and and they're with us. The, the instincts to commit violence, the reasons why people commit violence, um, the impulses to commit violence, they go very deep in our in our very nature throughout the animal kingdom throughout the whole world i mean that's that's darwin talked about that quite a bit and um it's not going to go away so understanding how to manage it and have a healthy relationship to it i think is the key and the other thing i i realized pretty early on too is anything that's that deep within our for lack of a better term call it primal self anything that goes that far into who we are and, and how we evolved, like sexuality and other things, 
tends to get polarized and people will repress and demonize it on one hand, or then they'll romanticize it or turn it into some kind of fetish on the other hand, neither of which is healthy. And you see people do this with violence all the time as well. So having a healthy relationship to the topic of violence is, is one of the goals of my book. <clears throat> and I mean, you, you talk about that fetishization of violence in your book. And I think it's interesting to think about violence in a positive way, but not in a way that glorifies or fetishizes it. And I wonder how you think that we can accomplish that. I know that's like a huge question, but how can we treat or look at violence in a, let's say a healthier way um, without, you know, I, I, I mean, the truth is that violence isn't all good or bad, hmm. right? Right. It's a tool. It's, it's, it's a tool and it can be used for very good purposes. And sometimes, as I mentioned in the book, violence is actually a very high moral imperative to engage in violence. If you see someone else being hurt or victimized and you have an opportunity to step in or your own loved one or even yourself, I think people have a, a moral obligation to defend themselves against violent predators. So um, it can become one of our highest moral duties. Um, the the fetishization of it, the romanticization of it, I think women do that sometimes, but I think it's primarily a male problem. And I think it's related to maturity and it's related to young men and um, having role models. I talk a lot about this in the book as well. Um, the book's not a public policy book. It's about personal self-defense, but I think anybody reading between the lines can see some of the things I'm talking about there and some of the uh, solutions that might be available. But Young men really need strong fathers and or strong male role models in their life. And it's through those interactions, not just what their fathers say to them, but watching how their fathers interact with other men, um, how they engage with people, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, how to treat women, how to treat other people. All those lessons that they learn are invaluable. And what happens is if you don't have that within the community, you have a lot of young men raising themselves and being raised by general culture. And that's when those problems really start to arise. I mean, you have Hollywood and you have everything else that plays on it. But um, the, the story I use in my book, which is a true story, when I was in Africa many years ago on a safari, they had um, elephants and uh, rhinos that were coming up dead. And there's not many things that can kill a big full grown rhino, but they'd found these rhinos that had been tortured and mutilated and all gored up. And at first they didn't know what it was and they thought it could potentially be poachers, but the poachers would have taken the horns and the rhinos weren't taking the horns. Their horns weren't taken. Um, and they eventually figured out right away that it was young male elephants had gathered together into gangs and gone around and hunted down some of these creatures and they were killing the rhinos. And the reason why that happened was because they were moving some elephants from um, Kruger National Park to Pelansburg, and the straps that they had on the helicopter weren't heavy enough to carry the big male bulls. So they had brought uh, female elephants, and then they brought some young male elephants, but they couldn't bring the bulls into the population. And immediately, they ran into a, a problem where those young males banded together and started murdering rhinos. Uh, 
And as soon as they realized what was going on, they developed some straps and they managed to figure out how to get the bull male elephants there. Within a couple months, the problem stopped immediately. And I don't think that that's unique to the elephant population. I don't think it's unique to um, other primates. I think it's an important part of who we are as people. And so part of that and part, part of not of understanding how to help have a healthy relationship to that topic is something that I think young men learn from their dads. Yeah. And you write about the, the, your experiences with being bullied as a kid. Um, and I've always thought, you know, like the idea of, of boys getting bullied makes me feel really sad, but it's really, really common. It happens all the time. And it's really foundational probably to most men's experiences growing up. And I think that it, it has a big impact and, and shapes who you are as a person. I wonder if you think that's sort of something that's inherent to men's lives or, or to masculinity, let's say. I don't think it's inherent to bully other kids, but I, um, I do think that that comes as a result again of that lack of influence. So, you know, that usually happens in school when the boys are in groups together and they're socializing together and there's not, another male around an older male anywhere around and and that's generally when these sorts of situations start to arise and if you go back into the home life of a lot of the kids that engage in that kind of bullying you're going to find a similar type of situation at home where they don't have they either have an abusive father or, and they've learned it from that or they don't have a male role model in their life that um is a strong and positive influence and then the bullying, I think, just kind of naturally arises. And my um, response to it was to become very, very violent. And it worked. It was a more socially accepted response amongst my peer group. But that doesn't necessarily mean that was the answer. It was just, uh, it was just the others just basically flipping the coin over from fear to just aggression, which is relatively easy to do. And that happens to a lot of kids as well where you'll see them snap and all of a sudden they'll do something incredibly violent. People are wondering what's going on about that. So I think it goes back to just how important it is to be careful about how we socialize young men in school, before school, after school, having plenty of male role models around. Um, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's exclusively men that can do this but i do think it is important that there are men that can do this because that's who young men will look to as who they can potentially become in the future mm -hmm. um and unfortunately when i've had these conversations before and when i was when i was researching the book i was i want to anytime i come up with something like this i always want to know what the counter arguments are the legitimate counter arguments to what i'm saying um and i i won't usually write about anything or talk about anything unless i know the other side's point of view pretty well. And unfortunately, a kind of a knee-jerk re reaction that happens a lot is people think in some ways I'm denigrating single mothers. You know, I had a single mother, she was great, and my mom raised me, she was great. And absolutely. But it, if you think about it, what I'm saying is actually the opposite of that. The job of raising a young, a healthy young man so he can turns out to be a gentleman and understands how to navigate the world appropriately and, and not engage in that kind of violence is very hard. And by mentioning the fact that 
um, young men need those male role models and need fathers in their lives. I'm not actually denigrating single moms. I'm actually um, applauding them and talking about, yeah, the, the single moms who do a great job, they're doing a fantastic job because it's actually a super hard job to do. In a way, I think uh, it's a compliment. Yeah. And and when you were a kid and you got beat up, um, your both your principal and your mom yeah. told you, and this surprised me a little bit. Uh, like it, it it does make sense when you explain it, of course. But yeah. I was surprised at that response, particularly from a principal, because I wouldn't have expected it. They both told you to fight back, and your right. mom told you you got to go beat those boys up. Right. Did you think that was? That was good advice. I mean, what would you tell a kid who was getting bullied to do? It was good advice because that's the only advice in that particular situation when things have gone that far that was going to help. Had I not done that, had I not stood up for myself and fought back at some point, that would have been a never ending. It would just would have been torture throughout the rest of my school year. And I think deep down I knew that. What shocked me about that particularly with my mom, that with the teachers, and I'm sure, you know, this was in the early 80s, and I'm sure that things have gotten a lot better. I have five kids now, and they go to school, and I can see how, you know, things have things have certainly progressed. It was a little different back then. But with the teachers, I saw a lot of apathy and not a lot of concern for this kind of problem. And, and a lot of the times when this stuff happens, there's not a teacher anywhere to be found, which also makes you wonder, you know, what is going on? But with my mom, I was a bit shocked because I'd gone to church. When you're a Jehovah's Witness, you go to church four days a week minimum. So we'd have a Bible study on Tuesday, a two-hour church meeting on Thursday night. You go door-to-door -door Sunday and knock on people's doors to try and make them be Jehovah's Witnesses. And then you do all-day church service Sunday and sometimes go door-to-door -door Sunday. So Four out of the seven days a week, I'm being indoctrinated in this religion since I was born until I basically decided I wasn't going to go, which happened, I think, when I was about 13 and 14. I just said, I'm not going to do that. My dad said that was OK. But um, so I was hearing this turn the other cheek message over and over again. And as soon as I came home, having been beaten, she immediately just, you know, turned the corner on that and got real angry and was talking to me how I need to beat the other kids up. And it was kind of shocking to me how quickly that principle just disappeared. So um, it took me a while to come to grips with that, but I, I did. And I went back and, you know, talk, I talk about that a little bit in the rest of the book too, but not necessarily in the most appropriate way, but I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what another response would be if you're getting bullied and beat up by boys at school. I mean, what else do you do? You can't turn the other cheek because you're getting punched. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and I mean, at what point was it that you started to get into fighting and, and martial arts? And, and why was it that you you became interested? I ever since I I found out about the existence of martial arts, I was fascinated by them. And I I used to spend most of my time reading when I was a kid, and and most of my time in the public library. And so I would look in uh, find the martial arts books in the sports section, and they had uh, if you go in the magazine section of the little town we grew up in, they had like 
black belt magazine and stuff. So I was constantly reading through that kind of stuff. And I was interested always in what works and what doesn't work. And then when I was think I was about 12 or 13, an old Bruce Lee movie, one of the ones that was made in China, not Enter the Dragon, because that came out in 1973, but another one was aired on TV. And it was the first time I saw a Bruce Lee movie. And I was like, man, this is amazing. And then I immediately began pestering my dad about what works and what doesn't work in a fight. Is this realistic? Is this not wanting him to watch movie scenes with me and kind of break it down like what works? And and I don't know if it was because the way I grew up, um, I tend to think it, it wasn't necessarily just the bullying because it, my interest in it predated that. I mean, I've always just had a natural fascination with what will work in a fight and what won't work in a fight? And in martial arts, they have what they call styles. And which styles are effective and which styles aren't effective. And the first UFC, actually, the which you know has now become the sport of mixed martial arts. But in the beginning, when it started, it wasn't about two fighters who know how to fight fighting in the cage. It was about matching up different styles. You'd have a Wing Chun guy versus a karate guy or something like that. And that was what I was obsessed with all my life. And you you spend a decent amount of time talking about um, various mixed martial arts styles or, well, sorry, not mixed martial arts, but martial arts styles, um, a lot of which are... I mean, I don't want to be rude, <laughs> and you know more about this than I do. But you know, some of which I guess sounded to me like they were just money grabs. Like, um, there's you know these certain styles that I feel like I'd like people to know so that they make good choices when they're looking at you know learning how to fight or looking at going into martial arts um, to choose something that's actually effective. I mean, at the end of the day, I think most people go into martial arts training um want to learn how to fight because they want to be able to defend themselves is that true 100 percent. so yeah. most people sign up because they want to be able to defend themselves and most martial arts most asian martial arts in particular are bullshit they don't work that's just a fact and um so uh, when I got out of the military, I started teaching. Uh, I went and joined a boxing gym, and I was looking at potentially becoming a professional boxer and was going that route. And I started training in martial arts called Jeet Kune Do Concepts, which was kind of a Bruce Lee's concept of training different styles together. And I became an instructor in that, and I was teaching what we call Muay Thai kickboxing, which is Thai kickboxing and, and boxing. And I became pretty disillusioned with that community as well, because some of what they would show is very realistic. Boxing is very realistic. It's the most realistic thing as it, way it gets as far as striking. Um, and then other, other material they would show was absolutely ridiculous. It was, you know, if I was trying to teach somebody how not to fight, I don't think I could organize anything even dumber than what they were doing. And they weren't discriminating between the two, which bothered me and people would come to me and ask me questions you know what does this style work and if that style doesn't work and what i eventually realized after a few years of watching this and going through it was the one thing every martial art that works has in common is it's a combat sport and so 
those are the arts that you see trained in MMA these days. But, you know, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, wrestling, which is a very functional martial art, Greco-Roman or freestyle or folk-style wrestling, Muay Thai, all these arts, the thing that they have in common is there are sports. And the thing about sports is you care about the result. So you you use a practical epistemology, you use some form of an opponent process. You lose, you use what I call a live training. And so the distinction between the martial arts that work and the martial arts that don't work is the training method. And it's just, it's just, just like philosophy. It's about the uh, method you use to arrive at the conclusion as opposed to the conclusion your, itself. And they have some form of training method where you're dealing with timing, energy, and motion, and you're working against an adaptive, progressively resisting opponent, and you're not pretending, you know, to do it. So if I'm in judo club and I'm working and I get a throw and I take somebody down, I actually got that throw. They're trying not to let me take them down. I'm trying to throw them. If we're wrestling, somebody takes me down and I sprawl and I miss and they get me on my back, they did it. They got me on my back. If I'm rolling in jujitsu and I take somebody's back and I apply a choke and they tap out, I got the choke. They weren't pretending to give me the choke. Um, But in other martial arts like Aikido and Kung Fu and different things like that, it's basically just choreography. And the two people are playing together in a kind of choreographed form. um, And there is no aliveness. And so the word that I came up with, it's just a single word that would explain what works always in a fight and what doesn't work and what the most important thing about martial arts is, is aliveness, timing, energy, and motion. And if people can, if people understand that one concept, then I feel like they're pretty much bullshit proof when it comes to martial arts. They can go out, they can watch any martial arts demonstration or see anything, and you'll be able to recognize what will be functional and what will be fantasy mm-hmm. and uh, which training methods work and which training methods don't work. So even though my book is not a technique book, it's not about martial arts techniques. I definitely made sure I included a chapter on that so that if people do take my advice and they engage in some kind of combat sport, which I think is important. If you want to learn to, to defend yourself, having some kind of combat sport background will be the way to go. Um, they can use that chapter to help them filter through and find a place that I think will be a good training training spot for them. Yeah. And it's interesting because, so I've only been into MMA and like watching UFC for, you know, probably like the last couple of years. I've always liked boxing, but I was never super into it. Um, I go to a Muay Thai Jiu-Jitsu gym here, although I'm, I just do boxing and, and weight training. So I I know now like a lot of men who um are into jujitsu and muay thai um my partner does muay thai and i think and i love mma um i love watching it um i find it super interesting and obviously entertaining but it 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 involves so much more training and skill than i would have imagined before i started really paying attention and i think that's pretty common i mean as you know like this was a sport that was illegal yep. at one point and people just considered it to be brutish. I think who, which politician said that it was like human cockfighting? John McCain. Right. John McCain. Yeah. I, I missed the boat on that because when I 
you know, I started training and, and started my school before the UFC, before the first UFC. And one question people often ask me is like, hey, did you realize how big the sport was going to become? You know, it's the fastest growing sport I'm, I amongst the 20-something demographic in the world. I had no idea. I honestly thought that they were going to completely ban it because at the time there was only a couple places where you could go to put on a fight. And we, we would have to put our fights on at Indian casinos to get around the law. Okay. So yeah, I did not see the popularity of the sport coming. I really did think it was going to be something that was going to be banned, but not anymore. I think that sport's here to stay and it's huge. It's grown huge now. Yeah, and I think one of the other big misconceptions is that these guys themselves are all brutish. Um, I think that people who don't watch MMA, um, who don't know anything about the sport, um, I think I think they do just think of it as brute violence, especially when you, you know, if you're just seeing clips and there's blood everywhere <laughs> um, or somebody's knocked out. But I think... I mean, you wrote about this and I've, I've, I've learned this recently too, is that actually like guys who really do know how to fight and who are trained in these, these forms of martial arts actually, I think are some of the safest, least brutish, least dangerous men. I mean, so long as you're not trying to pick a fight with them. Yeah, no, that's very often true. I think that functional martial arts and that kind of training is a necessary, but not sufficient component for certain parts of self-actualization and, and uh, making yourself a better person. In, in other words, making good people more dangerous to bad people, which is one of the goals of our my organization and one of the goals of the book, also makes better people. And part of that is just because of what you have to put yourself through. So if you're going to, if you're going to reach a level of black belt skill in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which anybody can do if they, if they train long enough and hard enough, um, by definition, you are going to have to submit tap, you know, say I quit thousands of times. You're going to be held down. You're going to get smashed. Somebody's going to put your arm. You got to tap. You got to over and over and over. And you will also submit other people over and over too. But especially the first part of that and on your way through, you're probably going to do a lot more tapping than having people tap to you. And very difficult to imagine many things that can instill more humility than that. You know, and one of the things I like about it, too, is it teaches people not just what they can do, but it's also very important. It teaches them what they can't do. I mean, anybody that's been training for a couple of years has a real good handle on what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. And they're not going to have any kind of, you know, uh, immature fantasies in their head about the nature of violence and, and how things can go. While at the same time, they will have accumulated a skill level that very few people have. And the other side of that coin is sometimes we forget because once you've started training for a few years and doing this, you're always training against other people who know what we do. So when I'm rolling in the gym, I'm rolling against other people who, who are capable of beating me and know what I do and have been training as long as I have. And when you're dealing with somebody who has no idea about any of this, um, it, it's just a it's just a whole different level uh and and so that's where the combat sports really become invaluable as far as helping people learn how to defend themselves but also just making better people 
having to tap out over and over again and and admit that you've lost over and over again and then control your emotions and be okay with that get back on the mat and grab that person again so you can try and problem solve and work through that problem which is what you need to do with jiu-jitsu it's like a puzzle you can't avoid the person that just beat you you got to go get them again and again until you figure out how to solve that whatever they got you with and then they do the same thing and it's basically kind of an arms race and the two of you evolve together that's how jujitsu works and that's a very uh, humbling process deeply humbling process and so i've met people who were jerks in in jujitsu and, and in professional fighters and stuff there's no doubt about that but the vast majority of the people that i meet when i travel around and, and do seminars the students and they're really nice people so my buddy peter bogosian who i think you know is one of my purple belts and now when he travels around he likes to go train at jiu-jitsu schools just wherever he's on tour he's in australia right now training with some some of my friends in australia but he always remarks to me over and over again it's like these are the nicest people you know every time i go in and every everybody's so gentle and you know kind and yeah that's that's been my experience as well yeah i mean they really are like i said i mentioned earlier that i go to a muay thai and jiu-jitsu gym and and the guys there it's like the best gym i've ever gone to i've never even really liked going to a gym and it just it it's so warm it feels so non-judgmental yeah. there's you know there's women and men who are training together it feels like a community i feel like everyone there is super respectful um and I, yeah, I think that must be inherent to that, that community in the sport um, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, I think, I mean, it sounds like you were one of the first people in the U.S. to get involved in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, can you talk a little bit about where jiu-jitsu came from and, you know, how, how, how this particular form of, of martial art came to be. Yeah. So jujitsu is Japanese in origin. Um, it was a Japanese battlefield art. So when, you know, you lost your weapon and you had to get engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, that's what it was for. Incorporated throws and clinch and ground fighting and even some strikes. And in the very, at the turn of the, the beginning of the, um, 20th century, you had a, some uh, Japanese immigrants that wanted to move to Brazil. And uh, they got help by uh, a gentleman, I think his name was Gastel Gracie, the original. And he was um, just a member of the Brazilian government. And he was able to help them get visas and help them immigrate into Brazil. And in gratitude for that, they taught his son, Carlos Gracie, jiu-jitsu. So Carlos Gracie learns the art of Japanese jiu-jitsu. And back then, jiu-jitsu was, and judo weren't quite separated the way they are now into different sports. It was all kind of the, the same battlefield art. And he learned it, and then he started taking on these challenge matches, him and his brothers. And... Brazil was kind of the perfect place for this to happen because it's an honor culture. 
patriarchal society where they're going to get in fights. And if these two guys fight, other people aren't going to run in and kick kick them in the head and try and break it up. It's like, okay, those two guys are going to fight. We're going to now stand and watch and let them fight until the fight's over. So the Petri dish, if you will, of what they were doing is one-on-one -on -one combat, no, pretty much no rules, um, and we're going to go until someone submits or is unconscious. And they just did that over and over and over again. And through that evolution, they developed jujitsu, Japanese jujitsu, and they modified it to work in what they call valetudo, which is anything goes kind of environment with strikes. And the history of the Gracie family is quite weird. It's kind of like a, uh, how can I say this without getting in trouble? It's a bit like a polygamist Mormon slash mafia kind of family. It's like, it's just a weird, it was a weird patri super patriarchal family where the, the men would have many wives, many kids looking for boy kids, building an army, um, and then pitting their kids up against each other to determine who the family champion would be. And that was kind of what the Gracies did. They had their own weird superstitious diet and uh, all, all kinds of other stuff that they had kind of invented. And so then they started doing challenge matches in Brazil where they would fight anybody, no time limit, coming in the cage and fight, including Carlos's younger brother, Elio, who was kind of thin and frail. And um, you had a guy named Count Kama Maeda, a Japanese champion who came over and had a fight with... Um, with Elio, he won that fight, but he, he was actually quite famous too. He would travel around the world and he also worked with Theodore Roosevelt. A lot of people don't know, but Teddy Roosevelt was big into Japanese jujitsu and put a ring in the White House so he could train. And he had trained with this guy. So that's how the art evolved. It was Japanese in origin, heavily modified by the Brazilians. And then around the time of the 60s, uh, Elio's children, which included Hickson, who was one of my instructors, and Holes Gracie and others, started to compete and started to move around, and they started to come in contact with Americans. They started to come in contact with American wrestling, and they started to blend that in because a lot of what they we do in American wrestling was better than what they were doing, and, it's, and that started. So now it became American-influenced, and the art developed from there in these challenge matches over and over and over again, most of which they won. And then um, Elio's oldest son, Horian, moved to the United States, and his way of promoting the art was to um, put out a challenge match of anybody that could beat him in one-on-one -on -one combat, he would give them $100,000. That was called the Gracie Challenge. And he had a very famous article in Playboy magazine where he – challenged anybody to to fight him and that eventually morphed into the ufc mm -hmm. and the ufc was his younger brother hoist hoist was kind of skinny unassuming kid i think most people that would have looked at him and then looked at some of the other fighters would have assumed he would lose i knew he was going to win just because i had been training the art but most everybody would look and see he was going to lose he wasn't like hickson hickson his older brother who's my coach, looks like a carnivore. He looks like somebody that's not going to lose. But uh, Hoist did not. And 
famously hoist won those fights and that was it then the art what originally started in brazil now started to blossom in la also uh, um Corian, um choreographed the first uh lethal weapon so if you watch lethal weapon with mel gibson some of the fight scene at the end where he does a triangle choke on the guy and stuff that was all gracie jiu-jitsu but that's how it started and then it just took off from there and one of the things that you you write about people who are interested in learning self-defense is how many misconceptions people have about what would be a danger to them you know who's dangerous who the predators are going to be you know why they're learning self-defense in the first place and and one of those things is the the stranger violence aspect i think a lot of people and i totally relate to this i mean i think that there's something natural about fearing someone's gonna you know break into your house and attack you a stranger's gonna attack you in a dark alley mm -hmm. um especially if you're a woman but why should people be actually learning self-defense learning how to defend themselves you know what is sort of a more common predator let's say yeah so when i was looking at the data so you have all kinds of myths about martial arts and then you have a, a lot of myths as well about um self-defense and violent attackers and most of what's written in the clinics that i would go to and they, the good material I don't, I don't want to put the material down it was all valuable and useful but it was always geared towards the stranger in the street who's going to attack you, you know, you're walking back to your parking lot and here comes somebody and trying to to rape you or to assault you in that way and um the data just doesn't reflect that the vast majority of assaults the vast majority of murders the vast majority of rapes um almost all violent crime is committed by somebody you know and a lot of people tend to forget that and i didn't really see much if anything on the market that talked about that and there's multiple reasons for it. I think part of it is because most people just naturally assume strangers who, who they need to be more worried about, because I think they think intuitively, and this can be dangerous as well, that they are already patrolling the boundaries of their life. And maybe they're not really in a way that they should be, um, or they don't feel like they're that demographic. Like there's a demographic of people who hang out with people that are going to get attacked because the type of person they hang out with, but in my case it would definitely be a stranger and um and so i wanted to make sure that i addressed that in the book and i talked about that actually first and i order i talk about threats in order of priority and the first threat that you have to worry about are the ones that are you already have close to you the ones that you let in your house the ones that you let around you um how to identify them who they are before it gets to the point where it's where it turns violent if we talk about women in general in particular, half of all women in this country are murdered by a husband or significant other. Half. So if you take that out, that's like 50% of the murders of women in this country disappear if we just take that one piece out. That's, that's how big it is. And in almost every one of those cases, it's preceded by long, multiple... Um, incidents related to stalking almost every time and um 
So I want people to know about that. When we talk about kids and we talk about sexual exploitation of kids or abuse, yeah, there's a possibility. It's a, I mean, as a parent myself, I can't imagine a worse nightmare than, you know, your, your kid disappears and you don't know where they are. That's horrendous. But the reality is it's almost always somebody you know. And if we're talking about boys or girls getting molested, it's almost always somebody you know, a friend of the family, somebody that, that you know and, and talk to. So how to be aware when those kind of people are around. I use the term character disordered very intentionally in my book because the point I want to get across is that when people repeat errors like that over and over again, it's not a mistake. It's a character flaw. And you need to create boundaries between yourself and those kind of people and, and keep those people away and safely from your life. And so if someone is judicious about that and they're paying attention to that, about that, this big, huge chunk of like, we'll call it the statistical odds of you being involved in some horrible event gets cut way down, massively down by, by keeping those people out of your life and paying and paying attention to when the character disordered people are in your vicinity. And even when we talk about strangers, even in those circumstances, it's not the type of situation where they're just all of a sudden on you and they're trying to grab you and they're trying to put you in a car. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. That can happen. But the vast majority of those cases, they too approach you or whoever. And there's a relationship, a short relationship that's going to ensue where they're going to engage in dialogue and they're going to be checking out to see if you seem like a good potential victim and they're going to be asking you questions and they're going to they're going to begin as a character disordered person and then they're going to turn into a violent attacker assuming that that you look like somebody who would be um, a good target for them. But it's very rarely just no conversation, no interaction, no chance, no time to see or feel what's happening, which is also super important because we have those evolutionary instincts within us and you can feel it when it's starting to come on um, and it just, boom, they're on you. That's, that's extraordinarily rare. In reality, there's usually plenty of warning signs leading up to it. And I wanted people to be aware of those warning signs and, and most of all, pay attention to them. I do talk about things to look for, things that, that other people may not necessarily always know so that they can uh, pre-incident indicators so that they can be wise to situations where they, they might need to pay a little more attention. But the truth is, you almost don't need much of that because everybody, you, everybody else has these great instincts and you will feel it when you have a predator in your midst and where it becomes dangerous is when people start rationalizing those those thoughts away because they want to be nice or they, you know, they don't want to appear whatever, racist or um, they don't want to think that of people. The, the more you're rationalizing in your mind away what your gut is telling you in a given moment, the more concerned you should be about that particular situation. Yeah. And I mean, I think that a lot of women do that. I think that a lot of women talk themselves out of their gut insti instincts. Um, you know, they might feel that a guy seems 
sketchy or, you know, they might feel something and they might not recognize what that something is and then talk themselves out of it because they don't want to be judgmental right. um, or they don't want to be mean. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what, what are women recognizing? You know, what are they, they sensing? What is that gut instinct um, for those who have, have talked themselves out of trusting it. I think that the uh, the instincts for women and the instincts for men are very often different. And so one of the things I say in my book is that, you know, if, you're, if your wife or girlfriend or loved one or daughter or somebody is expressing some concern about having her instincts going off about this particular male and you don't necessarily notice anything wrong, you should make sure you pay attention to her because sometimes they're different. And the signals that those kind of people will send to women may be very different from the signals that they send to men. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing is just to be able to pay attention to it. So I, I talk about with my daughters, what I teach them and I keep it really simple, just ABC. The first thing is awareness, awareness between you and them about communication where they feel comfortable telling you anything and telling you about how they feel and uh, they're aware that they have those instincts and they're aware that they should be paying attention to those instincts and 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 a certain amount of education about things just sketchy things to be paying attention to things when things just don't look right and then boundaries making sure they understand what their boundaries are and that they're really comfortable defending those boundaries and knowing that not only is it okay to defend those boundaries, that's what you want them to do. And then when they do defend those boundaries, you will always back them up. You're going to be on their side. And then the last piece of that is just making people comfortable with conflict. Because I think a lot of times, both women and men, but uh, especially in cases with women, sometimes they're not comfortable with conflict and they're trying to avoid conflict. And then that actually creates more of a problem. And that's something you can practice. That's something you can work on like any other skill. So if they're aware of what's going on around them and you're aware of how they're feeling and they're aware that they need to pay attention to those instincts and they have a clear understanding of their own personal boundaries, and an understanding that, that, that those boundaries are important and that they have a right and they owe it to themselves to defend those boundaries. And then you make them comfortable enough with conflict be, through practice that they, you know, they can engage in, and I not necessarily mean physical, but just verbal, you know, being clear with no and what you're not willing to do and being assertive. Most all of these problems can can be dissipated because predators are lazy. The predators in the natural kingdom and, and uh, animal kingdom and predator, human predators are lazy. They go to the easiest target. They're not going to go to the target that looks like it's going to put up a fight. They're going to move on to the next one in almost every case. You know, in school shootings, if there's a school shooter and he's walking through the door and he, and he checks the handle and the door's locked. Yeah, he could kick down the door. Yeah, maybe he could break the window and shoot the kids in that room. But the most likely thing he's going to do is go to the next door until he finds a door that's open. And then that's the place where he's going to, you know, attack the children. So they're lazy and understanding they're lazy. You understand that you set these 
boundaries up, you maintain these boundaries, and you're comfortable engaging in that conflict with them, they're going to, they're more than likely going to move on to another target. And what about the, the people who are already in your midst, the family members, the husbands, the boyfriends? Um, what are the, the warning signs there? I mean, like you say, this is, for kids, the biggest danger is going to be somebody they already know, somebody who's a family member or maybe like a close family friend or something like that. And for women, it's it's probably going to be their boyfriend or, the, or their husband. Yeah. So I give a list for what I call character disordered people in the book. Um, but with children, it's the same kind of thing. If a child like doesn't want to kiss someone or show affection to someone, you don't want to be in a position where you're you're like, well, make you should give Uncle Joe a kiss or whatever. You don't want to do that kind of thing. We need to listen to children. I tell a story in the book that happened. I was giving a talk here in Portland many years ago. And my wife was in the audience and she was sitting next to my daughter who at the time i think she must have been seven or eight and the guy that was sitting next to my daughter kind of put his arm around her you know went to touch her in some way and she kind of recoiled from him and i was watching it from my vantage point i was watching what was going on and my wife was quite aware of what happened and uh you know my wife just kind of gave him a look and then she pulled my daughter in and um kind of in a way kind of commended her for that and then paid attention. And as I was watching the situation and I, I assessed it, I didn't think the guy meant anything terribly bad about it. I don't think he was necessarily a predator. Um, but what I was proud of was how my wife reacted and how my daughter reacted because my daughter didn't want that guy touching her. She doesn't know him. So it's like, don't put your hand on me. And my wife commended her for that. And that was the perfect response. And I think that was a great lesson for my daughter at that time. And it could have been a terrible lesson had that gone the other way, where my wife had not wanting to be rude, had maybe, um, you know, told Annika off for doing that. So teaching your kids about that is very important. And when you're dealing with character disordered people, it's the, the lists are very simple, insincere, fake personality. Mm-hmm. What it, do they feel like they're trying to sell you something? Like, what is, why are you, why do I always feel like you're trying to sell me on some sort of proposition? Uh, a tendency to um, have outbursts and insults and emotional reactions where they're constantly coming back. Failure to take personal responsibility is a huge one. If in every given situation, if somebody is not taking personal responsibility, it's always someone else's fault, always some other story. That's a big one. And then eventually you get your, you get to the point of physical violence where they go from expressive violence, which is, you know, yelling and insulting and, and making excuses for their behavior to where it turns physical. But if you can realize who these people are in advance and keep them out of your life. And I know it's hard to do with family sometimes and, You know, that's a call every individual has to make on their own. But I do think it's important sometimes if you have a family member like that, just to create really strong boundaries from your family and them and just 
if they're if that person's going to be in your life or they're going to be around, you're going to have a conversation with them about how they're allowed to act and how they're not allowed to act. And if they're not going to engage in that, I think you have to sometimes separate yourself from those kind of people. And what did you learn in your research about how these character disorders, as you call them, develop? Um, is this something people are born with? Um, is it something that that's developed through, I don't know, family role modeling, trauma, stuff like that? Yeah. Everything I've read over the years, it, it seems pretty clear to me that it's always a case of both. And, um, it's very hard to put a number on that, you know, nature, nurture, but generally speaking, I think the more, the more studies that come out and the more we read about it, the more I see about it, the more we start to realize how much of it actually is nature and how many things really are um, inherited traits that we might not even think of as an inherited trait, really idiosyncratic, strange behavior that, you know, actually was something that, uh, wasn't necessarily learned, but at the same time, you also usually have an, an environment where the individual grew up where they were exposed to that as well. That's how they learned to socialize. Maybe their parents were that way. Um, so it's almost always, I think, a combination of nature and nurture. I think you have two different types. So you'll have the most common type, which is a reactive aggressive. And a reactive aggressive is somebody who's going to lash out um, they're going to be quick-tempered. They're going to take. They're not going to take personal responsibility. They're going to go for your weak points. Um, they're going to berate you, and that's the most common type. And that's that's where um, there'll be a heated argument. All, all of a sudden, it turns violent, and that's where the police will wind up having to show up to uh, a domestic dispute. And there's two brothers fighting, or there's a husband battling with a wife, or something like that. And that's the majority of who we see in prison. Um, is reactive aggressives. And there, from a nature standpoint, I do think that it's pretty clear that there's something going on with the prefrontal cortex and um, a lack of empathy, impulse control, mm -hmm. um, a failure to be able to push that pause button. And so that is definitely hardwired in many ways. And then on the other side of that, you have people who use violence in a very instrumental way and they can be far more dangerous. And, and that's what we're talking about. Legitimate psychopaths, the sociopaths, but they're also, I think those people are also actually quite rare. There's not that many of them around. And the interesting thing, I didn't get too much into this in the book, but when you start to study about that, the interesting thing is the areas where reactive aggressive criminals might have deficiencies in that prefrontal cortex and inability to um, to restrain themselves. The people who are true high-level sociopaths or psychopaths, th that part of their brain actually lights up even more. You know, mm -hmm. like very high-functioning, like the the Ted Bundy archetype of that. You know, or so. But but the odds of running into somebody like that are are quite small. And, and how does the prefrontal cortex um, factor in and in terms of abnormal? I think you describe it as abnormalities. And sometimes if it is damaged, I think that it can cause these kinds of character disorders in some way. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I think part of it can be inherited. I think part of it um, 
nature is, is born, but it also can be exacerbated by drinking during pregnancies, drugs during pregnancies, mm-hmm. abuse. Um, so, so all those factors go, come into play. I mean, if you have, let's say worst case scenario, you have very aggressive, reactive, aggressive parents or father or mother who has poor impulse control um they have a child they pass along a lot of those traits they're abusive to that child they drink heavily during the pregnancy maybe they've taken some drugs during the pregnancy as well all of that we know too also damages that part of the brain and, and could cause a lot of damage to that part of the brain and now you have a child that's got the worst of both worlds they've gotten uh um the worst of nature and nurture and you you get kids out there who really do lack self-awareness empathy and impulse control and the the one thing i tried to get across in the book my one my first big i think realization when i started to look at the data was problems related to the the root cause i believe of most of what we call problematic violence so in the book i'm talking about interpersonal violence not warfare and terrorism and things like that and interpersonal violence every year generally speaking kills four times as many people as war so um and that's crime and abuse and 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 that kind of thing and the major issue as i i believe as it relates to interpersonal violence the major problems are issues related to maturity and i still think you have a lot of people in this out there a lot of politicians a lot of other people who believe they're economic and that people are engaging in many of these activities because they're going hungry or they need food or even you know trying to get money to buy drugs and while all those things can can play a role the biggest if you talk to the police officers and you look at the data and the the biggest category for homicide in this country are fatherless young men killing other fatherless young men between the ages of 16 and 22 23 that's the by far the largest age group over issues related to status petty issues related to status and it's it that general lack of um maturity which i define as self-awareness empathy and impulse control and it's dangerous when you have a lot of these young men all together raising themselves absent many strong male role models they're going to form gangs and and this is what we see now and the only short to short-term solution that we have for it to put a stop to it in the beginning is more police and then when we find the repeat violent offenders you know by the time one of them shoots another one they've usually been arrested 11 to 12 times they've they've already been convicted of multiple felonies it's already illegal for them to carry a weapon but they've been caught and released caught and released in kind of a revolving door and then eventually they kill someone um but almost all of those crimes if you go back and check were crimes related to status respect amongst their peer group um that is the biggest portion of the violence when we see the huge spike that we've seen in this country in the last two years since the summer of 2019 that's what that spike is that's young men killing other young men over 
status. Yeah. And I, I mean, you, you wrote about, you called it boy speak, but you, you wrote about this kind of bravado and, and this, you know, I think that people misread confidence and and assertiveness mm -hmm. uh you talk about that as well as um you know well they 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 misread bravado and they misread like aggression as confidence and assertiveness and it's not that and i think men often kind of misread that about themselves like they think oh like i'm tough i'm assertive like i'm a i'm a real man's man i'm a protector because they act like assholes right right they're mistaking fear or um, concern that they're causing in other people due to their behavior for respect, which is pretty common because they don't know what real respect is. They hadn't been shown what real respect is. And how would they know if, if there's no strong male role models in that community that they can look up to that can kind of show them that what they have is each other and then what they see or in the media or what they hear in music or popular culture. And um, that sense of bravado, that, that idea that you're going to instill fear and concern in other people, that when they see you coming, people are going to want to cross the street because they're frightened of what you might do. Mm -hmm. To them, that gets misplaced, that gets miscategorized as respect. And that is a currency that they're looking to accumulate in their you know, short lived lives on the street. And then eventually they just, it's just winds up leading to prison, but yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, what does healthy confidence look like or assertiveness in a man? What does a, what does an actually kind of confident, tough, assertive man, man look like? Well, I think, you know, things that young men learn from their fathers is how to look at people when you're talking to them, how to look them in the eye, how to shake their hand, how to stand up for the things that you believe in, how to stand up for other people when the time is right, when you when you feel you need to stand up for them, um, how to be polite, uh, how to engage in a way where you're, you're not showing weakness, you're being strong. Um, but you're also kind and really, you know, strength has much real strength has far more in common with kindness than it does fear or cruelty. Cruelty is always the associated one way or another is basically usually just the flip side of the coin of weakness. So they, by being exposed to men like that and, and they can see how, how this person carries themselves, how they engage, how they handle disputes, how they communicate with other men, how they treat women, how they talk to other people. I mean, all those things are so important. And they learn not just from being told, but more importantly, from watching and seeing people actually model that behavior real time. And that's what real competence looks like we all know it when we see it and it doesn't have to come from a man i've seen i've used an example in my book before i've had plenty of women who carry themselves with confidence and gay effeminate men who are small it's not so much about mm -hmm. you know being big and strong as it is being someone who is going to stand up for yourself and stand up for your values and carry yourself in such a way 
where that's clear. And, you know, I, I had a, I don't remember if this story made it in my book, but I had a friend of mine, a young woman who's very attractive and she lived in the worst possible neighborhood here in town for a long time. A lot a neighborhood where a lot of people wouldn't go and, and walk because it was just always such a hassle. But she would walk her dog there pretty much every night. She'd say hi and walk her dog. She never had a problem. And it was just the way she carried herself. You know, yeah. she, she had her eyes forward. She knew where she was going. Her shoulders were back. She's walking her dog and people drove by and looked and that if I mess with her, that's going to be a problem. You know, she's, she's going to give us a hard time. The study, I used a couple of examples of studies in my book, but they've done these studies over and over and over again. And they've repeated them where they'll go into prisons and they'll show prisoners brief clips of people. The one that I was talking about was done, I think in New York where they only showed them from the head down. So from the neck down, walking a crosswalk. And uh, these guys were professional violent criminals, um, you know, muggers, things like that, rapists. And they would have them walk by and they would have them rape the people that were walking by on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you would really want to attack them and one being you really wouldn't want to attack them. And they would only give them a couple seconds. So you see the person walk, you see the person walk, and then they're just one to 10, one to 10. And they discovered that there was remarkable uh, similarities between they were all picking the same people mm -hmm. all within a point of two. And it basically just came down to in that particular study, how people carry themselves when they cross the street, how they walked. And was that sort of like a, they looked like people who lacked in confidence. Yeah, the people who were, were inclined to be attacked were, you know, kind of walking, their arms weren't moving or their arms were down and they looked like they were, lack of a better term, competent, or maybe they had a, a limp or a gait where they looked like they might have been a wounded animal. Mm. You know, but people who were upright, just walking across the street like they knew where they were going. And like, yeah, I'll put that person down as a two or three. Mm. It's not somebody I'm going to attack. I'm curious to know what you think about women's self-defense classes. I mean, a lot of these things are sort of, you know, day-long or weekend-long workshops, and they, you know, claim to teach women skills to protect themselves against potential predators. I wonder if you think those ever work. There are definitely things you can learn from it, and I think things that you have to be careful of. So I do. we do workshops like that as well. And one of the things when I do a workshop like that that I always – try and explain to everybody is I'm not going to teach you how to fight in two days. I'm not here to show you how to fight. Um, the best use of those kind of workshops is explaining to people a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about here, what to look for, what what to be aware of out, out in the world that should rate, cause alarm bells for you, um, how important it is to listen to your own instincts. And then we talk the training, the physical training, things that we do is we practice walking mm -hmm. or we practice having people be assertive or we'll practice having um, a woman stand in a room and having someone else encroach upon her and for her to be able to say no or to be able to say stop. And if they fail to um, stop and they don't, they fail to answer her to commands for her to raise her voice and become more assertive. And that can be really hard for a lot of people. And I've, 
seen a, a lot of people struggle just to be to be assertive in that way, to be able to raise their voice in that way. So from that standpoint, I think that those workshops can be really useful for people, to give people a better idea of just how to carry themselves, how to say no or fuck no or stop or, you know, and and general things of what to look for when you're out and about. Um, in terms of physically fighting off a bigger, stronger attacker, you're not going to learn much in two days. It's going to be very helpful. Um, but I would still encourage people to fight. You know, if you have the choice between complying and fighting, I think in general, in almost, you know, I'm never going to say never, but in most cases, I want to see people fight and do the best they can because, like I said, predators are lazy and and tend to be weak, and they don't want somebody that's going to fight back. Mm -hmm. And there's so many stories of women that had no training whatsoever, but are able to fight off, you know, true predators. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough, I know that I'm focusing on, on the woman angle a lot. Um, but you know, it's, it's like a, a conundrum, right? I mean, the, the situation is grim. There is a lot of violence against women. There's a ton of male violence against men also, of course. Um, but for women, I sort of wonder if they ever really stand a chance. I mean, if if women do do martial arts training like boxing, Muay Thai, jujitsu, stuff like that, I mean, do they stand a chance against a male predator? Sure. Oh, yeah. I have multiple female black belts um, that I have taught. So I have... I think at this stage, 35 black belts of my own, of which, quote me on this exactly, but I think six are women, uh, two world champions, former world champions. Wow. One of them named Lily, uh, she started with me when she was 51, 52. She earned her black belt when she was 69. That's amazing. Yeah. And she's very small. She's I don't know. I don't know what Lily weighs, but it, probably not a hundred pounds. She's a very tiny woman. Um, and I've watched her in seminars um, roll with guys. Rolling is like sparring, yeah. You know, and and submit them, you know, where she would catch them in an arm lock, and they're forced to tap, or she would have broken their arm, or she'll get on the back and and perform a choke. So can it be done? A hundred percent. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard. And the bigger and stronger the other person is, the more you have to make up for that with technical skill. So the woman has to be the, the female athlete, just like if it was a smaller male athlete. Jiu-jitsu, it's really interesting because jiu-jitsu is one of the only martial arts where smaller people really can consistently beat bigger, stronger people, provided that they're better at jiu-jitsu. And, and that's been proven time and time again. So... Now, if you're both equal skill, then, you know, obviously that's why there's weight classes in the sport. But yeah. but if you have a small black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the belt is just like a um, symbol of a tangible skill level that you can't fake any more than you can fake speaking Spanish or playing a guitar. So you can fake being <laughs> being a fake martial artist. But you can't pretend to be good at jiu-jitsu any more than you can pretend to speak Spanish or French because somebody is going to come in and go, hey, let's roll. And then right away, you're like, fuck, this guy doesn't know how to speak French, right? 
Yeah. So the belt means that. And a, if you have a black belt level person who's 135 pounds and you get a guy off the street who's 220 and they're a white belt or a blue belt, I almost bet my mortgage that that black belt will tap them out over and over and over again. Might be a battle. It might be a bit rough. It might take 10 minutes. It's not going to be easy. But nine times out of 10, the black belt will wind up winning that match. And that's the only sport, the only martial art really where I think I've ever seen that, that can do that consistently. And part of it is because when you're on the ground, a lot of um, the power that you have from size and from weight gets nullified especially if you're on your back, but even, even when you're on top, like how much could someone shot put if they're standing up and throw a big metal ball? And then if you put them on their knees, you know, how far is that shot put going to go? And then if you have them lay on their back, right, how far is that going to go? So the ground is a great equalizer, assuming that you know how to use it as an ally. And so it really is possible it's not easy. It's hard. It takes years to get good at jujitsu. I mean, I don't think people even begin to approach the level of being good until about 10 or 11 years of training multiple times a week hmm. because it's complicated, because it incorporates literally every position you could find yourself on the ground with another human body. And so you have to learn all, all of them, all of that, and then drill it. But but yeah, it can be done. And, um, you know, one of my black belts, Leah Taylor, goes around and gives women self-defense workshops. She's a former world champion. And she'll beat men all the time. Um, especially the lower belt men. But the other thing, too, you know, combined with that, her ability to do that, she also has a crystal clear understanding in her mind of what she can't do. Like she knows what it feels like to be on the ground with a big, strong man who's trying to choke her, who's trying to hold her down, because she does that all the time. So in a, it, we want to try and avoid physical confrontations, obviously, and avoid those situations. But should she ever find herself there, she's going to be at home. She's not going to be surprised. She's going to be where we spend time all the time. And then last but not least, there's a great element of surprise because I would feel bad for just the general street slug, you know, like crackhead who all of a sudden decides to attack Leah on the ground and then finds himself triangle choked or armbar because he'd have no idea, you know, what was coming to him or what was about to happen because I'm sure that's not what he would expect. So it can be done. It's hard work and um, it takes time. Um, and so I think the short workshops are mostly useful just for, for teaching people how important it is to be assertive and, and practicing being assertive. I mean, that's what we drill. We drill mostly being assertive. But I do encourage women to, to train and to sign up and train in combat sports. Just training consistently in a combat sport, even for a year or two, will also, going back to what we talked about before on the sidewalk, crossing the road, It'll change how you walk around. It'll change how you carry yourself, just naturally how you carry yourself in a way that is going to make you less likely to get um, picked on the predator shopping list. 
And and finally, I wonder, I mean, you've trained with a lot of men over the years. You've trained a lot of men over the years. I mean, what is it, what have you learned about men and and male violence and, and masculinity in in all this this work that you've done, um, training in mixed martial arts, jujitsu, et cetera? That's a good question. Um, I think that there is a type of man, a category of men who can't do what we do. They can't come into the gym and um, submit and put themselves in a position where they're going to have to tap over and over again or get hit in the face. And those are the ones who are most likely to lose their temper. Those are the ones who are most likely to be reactive, aggressive. Those are the ones who are most likely to be, I think, character disordered. And you can kind of see it when they come into the gym and you can kind of see that they're not going to last, not because anybody's going to be rough with them because my, my gym, everybody's very nice. And, you know, our number one goal is to make it wel welcoming for everybody that comes in. Mm -hmm. But I can just see this is a guy who's not, whose ego is not going to allow him to, to deal with that. And that's somebody who um, has other problems and probably somebody that I would – you know, that's not somebody I'd want dating my daughter. And you can kind of, I, I guess the longer I do this, the more I've done it, the, the you can kind of see that coming almost a mile away now when they're coming to the mat and you just go. And, it, and I don't mean that in a, in a condescending way where like, oh, he doesn't do what I do, so he can't last. I, I don't mean it that way. I just mean it's, there's a certain type of, of man who can't, lose over and over again and what you have to do to be good at jujitsu or fighting is like losing isn't just okay it's an essential like necessary essential part of our process and if you can't put yourself in a situation where you're going to lose over and over again you're not going to be able to do what we do and i think that that is a reflection of um bigger problems that will manifest so that's that's one piece of it the other piece is um so many men, and I think just like women and everybody else, have a lot of issues related to anxiety, social anxiety. Um, a lot of a lot of people were bullied. When you start to talk to the people who come into the gym and they start to open up a little bit, I'm always kind of amazed at the story. Everybody has a story of, you know, which is often you know quite bad, maybe an abusive father, or were bullied in school, or a little bit autistic, all kinds of different things that you wouldn't necessarily think, you know, if you just met them and just talked to them a bit because they've gotten quite good at being able to mask those those things in their short daily interactions. But after you spend a little time with them on the mat, you get to know them a little bit better. Some of those things start to come out a bit. And I guess it, it, uh, it has reminded me, constantly reminds me of just how common that is. It's very, very very, very common. Um, and that's probably the thing I like about jujitsu the best is if somebody comes in and they're willing to stick with it, it really does help all that stuff. You know, I, I've had kids come in who 
were on the spectrum a little bit to the point where when you would inter when I would introduce myself to them or talk, they couldn't look at me and they couldn't really hold a conversation. And they were terrified of um, social interactions and they had a never, you know, massive amounts of anxiety that they're living with. And, and honestly, two or three years later of training and, and rolling in the gym and there's no therapy. It's not us talking to them about it. There's nothing. It's just the process itself, just the process of getting in there and going hands-on and rolling and failing and sometimes winning and failing and sometimes winning in a physical way with another human body. And a year or two later, they're like different people. They're teaching mm -hmm. class. They're, they're look, they're looking at you. They're, you know, and that's the part I think that's the most beautiful about what we do but you know men are just like everybody else then there's so when i meet somebody who doesn't have those kind of issues i i'm starting to think at this point in my life that they're now the, the they're the small minority you know like everybody else is actually carrying all this baggage around with them. And when I meet somebody who's like, wow, they had a great childhood. They don't seem to have any kind of social anxiety or anything like that. Well, that's like right. ones that are in the small category. Right. I mean, so you must believe in people's ability to change. I, I, I mean, we can talk about extremes. I mean, most people probably have the ability to change, but what about those people who have character disorders? I mean, do you think that those kinds of of men let's say uh, you know men who are or have been abusive um men who are reactive men who aren't willing to be accountable um for their actions take responsibility for their actions is that something that can be addressed I like to think that it can be, it can, and I, and I'm sure that in some cases it can, but the, the, I think the real, the big piece there that holds them back is um, failure to take personal responsibility, because as long as that failure to take personal responsibility piece is, is in the equation, I don't think they really can change. Right. And, and so that has to, that has to stop. The excuses have to stop the, the and usually for them to come to that point there has there's like a really dark night of the soul type thing that they have to come to grips with um there's some things that they're going to have to look at that maybe they've been avoiding looking at for a long time and as long as they're dodging that and uh, they don't get over that part i'm very pessimistic about their ability to change but as soon as they say as soon as they stop that part, as soon as they take personal responsibility for everything that's happened, truly, you know, and 10 seconds later, they're not making up another excuse for it. Then I think, I think it's possible. I like to think it's possible. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. And again, I think this book is great and I hope that everyone reads it. Um, it's the gift of violence. Can you tell people where they can find the book? Yes, you can pick up The Gift of Violence uh, wherever books are sold. So you can pre-order it now on Amazon. You can pre-order it on um, 
Barnes and Noble, and you can pre-order it on um, an indie IndieWare, I think it is, but Amazon or Barnes and Noble for sure. You can look it up, get it pre-ordered on there, and yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content and early access to episodes. You can also follow and support my work on Substack. That's meganmurphy.substack.com. Or you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. You can also donate directly via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. You can donate any amount you like from $5 a month to 20 to 100 or more or less. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm.